Uh, Michael's talk, as you no doubt know, is on the Da Vinci Code, a novel you've all heard of, and the Da Vinci hoax, because there is a book which has been written to refute it. And uh, Michael will be telling you all about that. And he'll be referring, he tells us, I'm in fact repeating your words here, uh, to the two books mainly as the code and the hoax. Uh, Michael, many of you will be familiar with, Michael Ackerman. He's probably the leading expert in the British Isles on the new age, the rather confused and amorphous phenomenon called the new age. And he has talked here on two or three occasions. And each time it's never been the same talk because he's found a great deal of material to update the talk. But new information is always coming in. Today, as I say, he's going to talk about the Da Vinci Code, a firewall against truth. Um, we shall be stopping, by the way, about three o'clock, even if he hasn't finished. You can probably guess why. Uh, but he will be going on afterwards if he hasn't finished. Michael Ackerman. Thank you very much, David. Reverend Father, Sister, ladies and gentlemen. The purpose of uh, this talk <coughs> is to raise awareness about a subject that we had not even heard of two years ago. Although, having said that, I'm sure that by now most of you, perhaps all of you in this room, will have heard about or read about a book called The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. This is a book which has become reportedly the best-selling and most widely read novel of all time. Some of you may indeed have read the book already yourselves. Unfortunately, it is less likely that many of you will have heard of or read a very well-researched and informative book called The Da Vinci Hoax by Carl Olson and Sandra Missell. These two authors joined forces to write a book which would expose and correct the errors in the Da Vinci Code. Why would they write such a book? Surely the Da Vinci Code is just a work of fiction. Do we really need to take it seriously? Well, that is the main question that I will endeavour to answer during this talk. The Da Vinci Code and the Da Vinci Hoax. It sounds a bit confusing, doesn't it, as David said in his introduction. But all will be explained. And from this point on, in order to avoid unnecessary repetition, most of the time I shall be referring to these books simply as The Code and The Hoax. Now during this talk we will be looking at the background to The Code, the reviews and publicity it has received, and some of the repercussions of its publication. We will also consider some of the serious errors in the book. And these can be divided broadly into two groups. First, there are the errors concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, St Mary Magdalene, Sacred Scripture and the Emperor Constantine. And secondly, there is the false information concerning the Priory of Zion, the Templars, the Holy Grail and Opus Dei. Now clearly each of these topics could occupy an entire talk on its own, so of necessity we will keep this to a general overview. To conclude the talk, we will consider how necessary it is to respond to those people who may have been influenced by some of the claims made in the Code and how best we can do that. Afterwards, at the end of the afternoon's proceedings, there will be an opportunity for you to buy copies of the Da Vinci Hoax, that is this book, from the table at the back of the room 
where my wife Rita will, will be there to help you. And if you buy a copy, you will be able to read about the subject in more detail. And also, you will find there uh, a synopsis of this talk available as a leaflet, this yellow leaflet, which you can pass on to friends and family. So, what is the code? And what is all the fuss about? Is it just fiction? Just a story? Or is it an attack on the church? Should we ignore it? Or should we take it seriously? Are we paying it too much attention? Or is it really a case of needing to be forewarned and forearmed? Attacks on the church come in many forms, sometimes subtle, sometimes blatant, but always the purpose is the same, to attempt to undermine the truth and to question the authority and traditions of our faith. Lies, omissions, half-truths and misleading statements can, by themselves, or coupled with seemingly plausible alternatives, lead astray any unsuspecting reader or listener. It is in this arena, on this battleground if you like, that Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code has appeared. Now, on the principle of know your enemy, it is important for all Catholics, and indeed all Christians, to be aware of the errors contained in this best-selling book. False statements are presented as factual, supposedly based on authentic research, and set in the context of a fast-moving story. The result is that this misinformation is accepted by any unsuspecting or ill-informed reader who is unlikely to check the sources from which it is claimed to be taken. Sadly, this is particularly true of younger readers, most of whom have had little or no proper formation in the faith, and among whom the code seems to be especially popular. And it is not uncommon for older Catholics to be challenged by relatives, neighbours or work colleagues about the so-called revelations contained in the book. Amid all the controversy that seems to be surrounding this book, one fact at least is undoubtedly beyond dispute. And that is that the Da Vinci Code is a publishing phenomenon. It has topped the best-seller lists on both sides of the Atlantic for much of the time since its publication in April 2003, and sales are now estimated to have reached 20 million copies. It is being translated into more than 40 languages, and there is now the prospect of a high-profile, big-budget Columbia Pictures film starring Tom Hanks, which is scheduled to be released in May next year. In fact, the latest information is that filming in America and Europe is due to start next month. Now, not surprisingly, the publisher of the book revels in many of the ecstatic reviews that the book has received, to the extent that there are four pages of them included at the front of the book. To give you a little flavour of what they contain, here is one from the New York Times. The word for the Da Vinci Code is a rare invertible palindrome. Rotated 180 degrees on a horizontal axis so that it is upside down, it denotes the maternal essence. Read right side up, it concisely conveys the kind of extreme enthusiasm with which this code-breaking, exhilarating thriller can be recommended. That word is WOW. Now, in case you haven't already visualised it, if you turn the letters W-O-W -W upside down, it reads M-O-M, -M, Mom, which I think is American for mother, hence the maternal essence. 
Other reviews comment on Brown's impeccable research, that the code should be mandatory reading, that it contains several doctorates worth of fascinating history, that it manages to entertain and educate simultaneously, and that the author incorporates into the story massive amounts of historical and academic information. Praise indeed. But words such as these, words like impeccable research, fascinating history and so on, all imply that the information in the book is authentic and accurate. But all of this is endorsing a book in which it is claimed that Jesus is not God, he was only a man, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, that they had a daughter whose bloodline survives to this day, that Mary Magdalene should be worshipped as a goddess, that Mary Magdalene, not Peter, was directed to establish the church, that the Bible was put together by a pagan Roman emperor. For centuries, a secret society has been protecting this so-called truth, whilst also for centuries, the Catholic Church has suppressed it, sometimes using violence to do so. Now at this point, I think a brief summary of the plot of the Code will help to establish the context in which these claims are made. And this is how the authors of the hoax summarise the plot. Most of the novel takes place in a period of about one day, in the month of April, beginning with the murder of the curator of the Louvre Museum in Paris. An expert in religious symbolism, Robert Langdon, is asked by the French police to help interpret a strange mark left on the body of the deceased. Langdon is joined in his investigation by an attractive young cryptologist, Sophie Neveau. Soon, they are suspects in the case and are fleeing from the authorities. In the course of trying to escape, they team up with a wealthy historian and Holy Grail fanatic, Englishman Sir Lee Teabing, who is an acquaintance of Langdon. Chased by the authorities and a so-called Opus Dei monk, the group travel from Paris to London. Woven throughout the narrative are a series of lectures by Langdon and Teabing on the identity of the Holy Grail, the importance of Leonardo da Vinci and his most famous work, The Last Supper, and the alleged truth about Jesus and the Catholic Church. After some obligatory twists and turns, the novel concludes with Langdon having a sort of spiritual experience at the supposed burial place of Mary Magdalene, believing that he hears her voice, which he calls the wisdom of the ages, whispering up from the chasms of the earth. Now, as I have indicated already, during the course of the novel, it is alleged that the Catholic Church has perpetuated a centuries-long conspiracy to conceal the so-called truth about Jesus Christ Mary Magdalene and much else and it has done this allegedly in order to maintain its patriarchal power. Furthermore it is claimed that the church will stop at nothing including murder to keep these so-called secrets from the public. Now in the light of this it is surprising not to say unusual in a work of fiction that right at the front of the Da Vinci Code we find a page headed FACT in capital letters. And on that page we read the following statement. All descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. This is a statement which Brown himself has repeated several times on air during television and radio interviews. Furthermore, in those interviews, he has also stated 
that if he was to write the book again as a work of non-fiction, he would not change anything. So, we cannot avoid the conclusion that the author has an agenda here. We must conclude that his purpose is more than just storytelling, especially when we consider that he has also said publicly in an interview on CNN, and I quote, We need to return to worshipping goddesses. We need to return to and embrace the sacred feminine. On hearing this, Father Mitch Pacwa remarked on EWTN, Dan Brown is evangelising. Now this should concern us because as Olson and Misel and others have clearly demonstrated, we know that the history, theology, tradition and authoritative teaching of the Church is misinterpreted and misrepresented throughout the Code. This is how writer and teacher Amy Wellborn expresses it in her book, Decoding Da Vinci. Author Dan Brown presents many assertions about history, religion and art. He presents them as truth, not as part of his fictional world. He puts these assertions in the mouths of scholarly characters and frames them with phrases like historians say and scholars understand that and Brown has repeatedly said in interviews that part of what he is doing in this book is presenting a heretofore lost history to readers and that he is glad to be doing so. Bearing all this in mind It is also a matter of concern that numerous other books have now been published as spin-offs to the Code, purportedly to provide more information about the mysteries explained in the book. They are simply spreading more widely the same errors, sometimes it seems in an even more exaggerated fashion. For example, a book entitled Secrets of the Code is a compendium of excerpts from numerous books, websites, magazines and interviews and in it we find find this comment in the introduction and I quote For Catholic women in particular, many of whom have long been embittered by the church's stance against abortion, birth control, divorce and women being ordained priests The book illuminates how the feminine half of the human equation may have been deliberately suppressed for political reasons by the rise of the institutionalised power of the Roman Church. Another book called Cracking the Da Vinci Code states that the code is doing... um, what the code is doing is bringing into the mainstream a river of thought and a host of theories that have until now been seen as alternative and in some way heretical. In another spin-off book written about the code, an introductory paragraph states, The Christian Church is not fond of being observed with a critical eye, The church has depended upon the faith of its followers for 2,000 years and conveniently for them, faith is belief without evidence. And so it goes on. It is clear that Dan Brown has tapped into the depths of hostility towards the church as evidenced by these other books which are helping to spread his message. Last October, to exploit the Christmas gift market, a special edition of the Code was published as an illustrated collector's edition in hardback, retailing at £20. In an author's note to this coffee table version, Dan Brown writes, When I was first approached with the idea of creating an illustrated edition of the Da Vinci Code, I was intrigued. One of the most common questions asked by readers 
is where can they go to see all of the art, architecture, locations and symbols described in the book. This illustrated edition seemed like the perfect answer. For me, the process of researching the rich history and images associated with this story was a wondrous journey of discovery and it's thrilling to see now these visuals interspersed with the text. Adding to the commercial opportunities which the code seems to have spawned are the conducted tours now available in Paris, London and Rome for tourists who want to see for themselves the places mentioned in the book. Indeed, one of the leading tour operators in Paris lists their two-and-a-half-hour Da Vinci Code walking tour as currently their most popular visitor attraction. The website of this company tells us that our DVC expert points out every clue, every significant stone and every painting in a way which will make the book come alive in front of your eyes. In a recent Channel 4 documentary, the presenter asked a group of tourists on such a walking tour what their impressions were about Dan Brown's latest book. And the responses to the questions went like this. Presenter, do you think the Da Vinci Code is true? Lady Tourist, well, it's based on fact and a lot of the things they describe you can see in the paintings. You just have to decide if you're interpreting it the same way. Presenter, would you say you're entirely sceptical about it? Lady Tourist, no, it makes a lot of sense. I'm not 100%, but I can see how people agree with it. Presenter, how about the Priory of Zion? Lady Tourist Well, there's been many cults through time that have believed certain things, carried them on in secretive ways, so maybe there was such a thing. Well, this last answer flies in the face of clear evidence that the Priory of Zion has been shown conclusively to be a hoax, and this was illustrated in detail during that same documentary. Commenting on a tourist firm's guided tour of Rome based on places mentioned in the book, Archbishop Foley, President of the Pontifical Council for Social Communications, pointed out that people with what he called a superficial religious formation may take the book as gospel and be deceived. It is a matter of regret, although predictable, that the Da Vinci hoax is not to be found on the shelves of high street bookstores, although inevitably the code is displayed and promoted prominently, as are several of the spin-off books. It has also been noticed that the code is sometimes displayed in the religion section as well as in the fiction section. So, what are we to make of all this? What beliefs, what false ideas are being spread here? Let's look now in a little more detail at exactly how the deception takes place. What is at the heart of the matter here is not so much the errors concerning specific events and actions, serious though they are, but rather the claims about the philosophy or belief system within which those events and actions occurred and which, it is claimed, validates those events and actions. The authors of the hoax refer to this as the religion of the code. And as they clearly demonstrate, the religion of the Da Vinci Code is Gnosticism that heresy which was widespread in the 2nd and 3rd centuries and which has resurfaced repeatedly ever since, albeit under different disguises, the present one being the beliefs and practices of the New Age movement. The word Gnosticism derives from the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, meaning knowledge, but knowledge only available to the select few. 
In the Catholic Dictionary compiled by Father John Harden, we find a definition of Gnosticism which I want to quote here because I believe it is the key to understanding what Dan Brown's book is really all about and the ideas that he is promoting through his novel. This is how Father Hardham defines Gnosticism, and I quote, It is the theory of salvation by knowledge as opposed to faith. Already in the first century of the Christian era, there were Gnostics who claimed to know the mysteries of the universe. They were disciples of various pantheistic sects that existed before Christ. The Gnostics borrowed what suited their purpose from the Gospels and wrote new Gospels of their own. Although extinct as an organised religion, Gnosticism is the invariable element in every major Christian heresy by its denial of an objective revelation which was completed in the apostolic age and its disclaimer that Christ established in the church a teaching authority to interpret decisively the meaning of the revealed word of God. End of quote. The relevant paragraph incidentally on this topic in the Catechism of the Catholic Church is number 285. It is interesting to note also that in volume 1 of Philip Hughes' History of the Church it states that Gnosticism, being pre-Christian in its origins, set out to reinterpret paganism and Judaism and in the course of the interpretation altered them radically. The Gnostic movement became a rich and confused amalgam of rituals and beliefs, magical practices and theories which attracted many followers. So now, back to the Da Vinci hoax. Authors Olson and Miesel point out that the code draws deeply, as they put it, draws deeply upon Gnostic ideas about spirituality, Jesus Christ, Mary Magdalene and the early church, and that it weaves elements taken from that ancient belief system into a modern-day story of murder, intrigue and conspiracy. But, unfortunately, many Christians who are fans of the novel do not seem to appreciate that it is an attack upon the core beliefs of the Christian faith. As Professor Hitchcock writes in his introduction to the hoax, the Da Vinci Code is nothing less than the claim that Christianity has been a deliberate fraud almost from its beginning, that the true story of Jesus was suppressed and that only now are we finally learning what it was all about. And remember that Dan Brown stands by his claim of accuracy and authenticity with his fact page and his evangelising public statements. As an example of how fiction and non-fiction become confused, there is one page in the novel where, as part of a conversation between two of the characters when they are in Teabing's library, the code even mentions by its title a book about the so-called Gnostic Gospels, which, along with writings, uh, with other writings, has helped to popularise Gnosticism again during the last 25 years. In summary, the main ideas being propagated here are that people should be free of unneeded doctrine and stifling dogma, that orthodox Christianity is too rigid, and that it keeps people from making their own choices about good and evil and about truth and falsehood. As detailed in The Hoax, these comments touch on the Gnostic themes found within the Code, for example, suspicion of tradition, distrust of authority, dislike for dogma and objective statements of faith, and the pitting of the individual against the institution. There is also the promise of secret knowledge, which is one of the reasons for the novel's success. 
readers are misled into believing that they are being let in on a secret that has been hidden for centuries. This has always been the promise of Gnosticism. Freedom from authority, insight into a reality that suits the person, and enlightenment that goes beyond normality. Or, to put it another way, it is a religion of revolt against conventional religion. Please stop the machine and turn the cassette over at this point without rewinding. The program continues on the second side. Dan Brown continues to push this theme in chapter 55 of the Code, when his characters Langdon and Teabing tell Sophie that not only did the Emperor Constantine commission and finance a new Bible, but that anyone who chose the Gnostic Gospels over his, that is Constantine's, version was deemed a heretic. Langdon then says... The word heretic, meaning choice, derives from that moment in history. Those who chose the original history of Christ were the world's first heretics. Now here we have a very clear example of the errors and misrepresentations in the code. Because, as the hoax authors point out, from the perspective of the passage just quoted, and for much of the following six chapters in the novel, Faith is all about seeking and choice, not certainty and dogma. And that's quite apart from the fact that the word heresy actually dates back several centuries prior to Constantine, even before the time of Christ. Peter, in his second letter, chapter 2, verse 1, writes as follows, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Ignatius of Antioch, writing around the year 110, also refers to heretics, whilst Irenaeus, who wrote around AD 180, that he intended, and I quote, to set forth the opinions of those who are now promulgating heresy. And he went on to mention specifically someone called Valentinus, who, and again I quote, who adapted the principles of the heresy called Gnostic to the peculiar character of his own school. So, some 150 years before Constantine and the Council of Nicaea, Gnostic leaders and their teachings were being denounced as heretical, choosing beliefs contrary to that of the church established by Jesus and his apostles. Also, it is pointed out that whilst the Code erroneously claims that those who chose the so-called original history of Christ were the world's first heretics, the heretics specifically condemned at the time of Constantine were the Arians, not the Gnostics, as Brown has implied. Now against that background, we can look briefly at the rest of the analysis compiled by Olson and Meisel. We'll do this within the two groupings that I mentioned earlier. So first, the errors concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, St Mary Magdalene, the Emperor Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. I'll run through these in the order in which they appear in the Da Vinci hoax. First, in the chapter entitled The Magdalene, Saint, Sinner or Goddess, we learn that In the course of about 25 pages, readers of Dan Brown's novel are exposed to a flood of claims about Mary Magdalene, her identity, her supposed relationship to Jesus, her role in the early church, and what she supposedly had to do with the Holy Grail. For example, Brown maintains that the quest for the Holy Grail is the search not for the chalice used at the Last Supper, but for the resting place of Mary Magdalene. He also asserts that the Catholic Church launched a smear campaign against Mary Magdalene, slandered her name and labelled her a prostitute out of spite, and that Jesus and Mary had children. Each of these errors 
is refuted and dealt with in some detail by the authors of the hoax. The next chapter is headed The Christ and the Code. And this chapter states bluntly that if the Da Vinci Code's depiction of Jesus Christ is correct, Christians might as well play golf on Sunday mornings and put their Bibles in storage. The Code makes the claim that prior to the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, no one, not even Jesus' followers, believed he was anything more than a mortal prophet and great man. However, as we know, and as the hoax affirms, with examples from the Gospels and early Christian writers, there is clear and copious evidence that the early Christians, dating back to Jesus' time on earth, believed that Jesus of Nazareth was divine. At this point we are given numerous examples from sacred scripture and quotations from the writings of Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria. This is followed by a chapter about Constantine, Paganism and the Council of Nicaea. One of several claims made in the Code is that it was the Emperor Constantine who transformed Jesus from a mere mortal man to the Son of God and by so doing cemented the Catholic Church's control of the person of Jesus. The hoax authors point out that Brown is especially adamant that Constantine was at the heart of the move from matriarchal paganism to patriarchal Christianity by waging a campaign of propaganda that demonised the sacred feminine, obliterating the goddess from modern religion forever. As far as the emperor and the council are concerned, a brief overview of the basic facts shows that the claims made in the Da Vinci Code are wide of the mark on a number of counts. So now to the second grouping. Chapters 5, 6 and 7 in the hoax are headed respectively Myths of the Holy Grail, the Real Templars and the Templar Myth. In these chapters more of the Code's errors are exposed and corrected. For example, Brown makes large claims for the Grail story, calling it the most enduring legend of all time even though it was unknown until the late 12th century. He says that the Grail has been the object of wars and quests, as if these were real and not literary events. And his manic enthusiasm for Mary Magdalene as wife or at least sexual partner of Christ requires, of course, the dethronement of the Blessed Mother as Queen of Heaven. This is a long-standing feminist strategy. According to the Code, the Knights Templar were a law unto themselves. But the fact is that the Templars' unique vocation earned them enthusiastic support throughout Europe, and though a papal bull of approval in 1139 made them independent of local bishops, they remained answerable to the papacy as every religious congregation of pontifical right still is. The Da Vinci Code and its sources trade heavily on the supposed continuity between paganism, Gnosticism and the Templars, as well as on the supposed Gnostic connotations of the Holy Grail. Next comes a chapter about the Priory of Zion hoax, in which we read that Whatever its popularity and influence, the Templar myth, at its most mystical, failed to satisfy some tastes. Deeper levels of mystification were devised by inventing the Priory of Zion, a secret society reputed to be the hidden power behind major events in Western history. Although the false history of the Priory has been repeatedly exposed since at least 1985, 
Dan Brown wants his readers to think that it is real and that its preposterous claims are genuine. After this, the hoax authors turn their attention to what they refer to as the artistic errors. Because Leonardo has fascinated people for centuries, it is no surprise to find that some of the appeal of Brown's novel is undoubtedly due to its use of the Renaissance genius and its striking claim about the meaning and content of his paintings. However, the distorted nature of the novel's depiction of Leonardo culminates in the assertion that from 1510 to 1519 the artist presided as Grand Master over, you've guessed it, the Priory of Zion, the so-called secret society that protected the alleged truth about Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Brown also claims that Leonardo was fascinated with goddess iconology, paganism, feminine deities and contempt for the church claims that are seriously flawed as an examination of Brown's so-called evidence, the actual artwork of Leonardo, clearly demonstrates. Before concluding, perhaps we should have another look at the errors concerning the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, which I mentioned earlier. It is, after all, such a serious distortion of the truth that we must be able to refute it categorically if challenged by someone who has read the code. The professor of history at St. Louis University, James Hitchcock, who wrote the introduction to the Da Vinci hoax, indicates that the author of the code appears to have, and I quote, a sincere, even deep, dislike for historical, traditional Christian beliefs. This is a conclusion echoed by the authors of the hoax, who draw attention to the fact that about halfway through the book, a lengthy conversation takes place between Langdon, Teabing and Sophie, in which the historian, Teabing, makes a number of assertions, such as, the divinity of Jesus was first raised and established at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, that prior to that time, not even Jesus' followers believed that Jesus was anything more than a mortal prophet and a great man, and that no one believed that Jesus was the Son of God until that momentous event, the Council, and that this belief was proposed and voted into existence by a relatively close vote at the Council of Nicaea, endorsed by the Emperor Constantine for the purpose of solidifying his power and the power of the new Vatican power base of the Catholic Church. Each of these assertions is wrong. The authors of the Da Vinci hoax, Carl Olson and Sandra Miesel, joined forces to write and publish their book in order to highlight and refute the errors propagated by the Code. This they have done effectively and comprehensively. And I want to make it clear, by the way, and this is in response to a question uh, that has already been asked, I want to make it clear that it is not necessary to read the Da Vinci Code in order to understand the Da Vinci hoax, because the authors of the hoax quote extensively from the Code throughout their book. There are, of course, other sources and commentaries that can be referred to, many of which can be found in the footnotes throughout the hoax. For those who have access to the internet, I would also suggest the Catholic Answers website, which can be located at www.catholicanswers, written all as one word, .org, where there is an answer guide to the code, and www.davincihoax, again written all as one word, davincihoax.com, this website includes a study guide which can be downloaded. Incidentally, it is not just a matter of quoting Catholic sources when refuting errors found in the Code. It is interesting to note, 
and this might be useful if you're challenged about this. It's interesting to note that of the 50 books placed in the selected bibliography of the hoax by Sandra Missell, no fewer than 49 of them are written by non-Christian authors. The final paragraph of the Da Vinci hoax carries this compelling message. So what is the Da Vinci Code? Is it just a fad, a one-hit wonder, a novelty novel? Will people even remember it in ten years? And will it matter? Is it worth writing an entire book in response to it? We think it necessary, especially considering the impact and influence the novel has had and continues to have. And I think it's necessary too. Last November, when Carl Olson was interviewed by Father Mitch Pacwa on EWTN, he said, The biggest danger with the code is not one or other particular historical claim, but the overarching sense that truth is whatever you want to make of it. You can customise your truth, your spirituality, to meet your particular needs at any given time for whatever purpose you wish. Your truth is okay for you, my truth is okay for me. Shades of the New Age movement again. I mentioned earlier in this talk the popularity of the Da Vinci Code among young people. Ten days ago, by using the email on the uh, internet, the email facility, a friend of ours, happens to be the boyfriend of my niece, Paul, I must mention Paul by name because my niece is sitting in the audience. Um, Anyway, Paul very kindly agreed to circulate a simple questionnaire to a large number of students and staff at two universities. To date, we have received 121 replies. Half of those who responded have read the code and their answers to our questions are as follows. To the question, did you, why did you read the code, more than a half said that a friend had recommended it, and a third said that they read it out of curiosity. To the question, what was your main impression of the book, two-thirds thought it was a good story, and that they learned things that they did not know before. More than a third said that they had read some startling facts. To the question, would you recommend it to a friend, 58 out of the 60 respondents said yes, and almost as many, 55 out of the 60, said that they intend to go and see the film. We also included a space for individual comments, and some of these have been quite revealing. I'll just quote one or two here. Lots of thought-provoking facts. It made me want to learn more about the oppression of women by the church. The film should make for good viewing. The book is a clever manipulation of art and religion. Being a Catholic myself, this book made me question my faith. I think it, uh, I think it contains some possible theories but we'll never know the truth. And the the last one that I'll quote here is more encouraging. This respondent said, it made my view of the Catholic Church more positive due, due to such a blatant attack. But overall, I think these replies should give us more cause for concern than for comfort. At the beginning of this talk we said surely the Da Vinci Code is just a work of fiction. Do we really need to take it seriously? Are we paying it too much attention? Or is it a case of being forewarned and forearmed? Well I believe it is clearly the latter. I believe it is a blatant attack on the church. I believe we should have answers ready when they are needed. And I believe as Carl Olson has said that this can be a catechetical moment. It is an opportunity to evangelise. It is an occasion to stand up for the truth. When it comes to reliable, verifiable evidence, 
We have touched on a number of examples in the last 45 minutes and we have hardly scratched the surface. We have the Old Testament messianic prophecies, we have the eyewitness accounts of the apostles, we have our Blessed Lady and the saints, we have the fathers and doctors of the church, we have the God-given authority of the church and the vicar of Christ on earth. I've only got one minute. In short, we have sacred scripture, sacred tradition and the magisterium, all of which have served us well for 2,000 years. How can anyone seriously suggest that all of this has been a fabrication, a plot, a conspiracy, with not a whistleblower in sight, unless, of course, his own agenda uh, is, is one for attacking the church? Ours is the one true faith, a gift available to all under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit. It is not some mysterious spirituality available only to the select few. Let me give the final word to Francis Cardinal George, Archbishop of Chicago, who contributed the foreword to the Da Vinci hoax. And this is part of what he wrote. We find salvation through self-surrender in faith to Christ, not from personal ideas or inspirations. Once the anchor of the church's authentic witness and teaching is abandoned, Gnostic or other false theories inevitably appear. Antagonism, antagonism to the church and her teaching ultimately entails some kind of rejection of Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself in history. His truth is always a challenge to every egocentric vision of reality and to an unbounded will for human autonomy. And besides, does anyone really think that all those martyrs went to their deaths to protect the secret that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married? Enough said. Thank you for listening. God bless you. Thank you very much, Michael. Fully of the standard we've come to expect from you. Um, before I ask Robert and Anthony to come up here, uh, I think it's only fair to give Michael something of a bash on his own. At, uh, in other words, to have a number of questions shall we, from you. Shall we just say that the Holy Mercy chapter? Uh, yes, let's do it now. Sorry, it's just, it just gone three. Sorry, I've let, it, I've let yeah. it go by. We'll yeah. say that at Divine Mercy chapter first. Mm. Shall we, all, shall we all say this together? we start with the, uh, the three o'clock prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You expired, Jesus, but the source of life gushed forth for souls, and an ocean of mercy opened up for the whole world. O fount of life, unfathomable divine mercy, envelop the whole world, and empty yourself out upon us. O blood and water which gush forth from the heart of Jesus as a fount of mercy for us, I trust in you. And the chaplet. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses. And forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, the Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered in Sorrowful passion. For the sake of his 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 sorrowful passion. For the
for the sake of his sorrowful passion, 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 eternal Father, we offer you sake of his sorrowful passion for the 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 sake of his sorrowful passion. 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 Eternal Father, our For the sake of his sorrowful passion, 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 for the sake of his sorrowful passion. 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 Eternal Father, for the sake of his sorrowful passion. 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 Eternal Father. For the sake of his sorrowful passion. 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 Holy God, holy God, holy God, have mercy on us. 
through which God poured from the heart of Jesus and the fount of mercy for us, I trust in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. Amen.